I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The introduction of precision medicine has revolutionized the treatment of cancer and other diseases, but mental health conditions have not benefited from the same type of treatment innovation. Alto Neuroscience is working to move psychiatry away from a trial-and-error approach to develop targeted medicines with the use of biomarkers to match the right drug to the right patient. We spoke to Amit Etkin, founder and CEO of Alta Neuroscience, about its efforts to develop precision medicines for mental health disorders, its AI platform for biomarker discovery, and its therapeutic pipeline in development. Amit, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to the discussion. We're going to talk about psychiatric medicines, alter neuroscience, and its efforts to bring precision medicine to these conditions. Let's start with the state of psychiatric medicine today. If I think about areas such as cancer, there has been significant progress towards understanding the molecular mechanisms of disease and patients' genetic drivers of diseases to determine the most appropriate therapies. What's the state of psychiatric medicine today in this regard? Unfortunately, the state of psychiatry is not that much different today than it was even in the early 1990s. We have a number of of drugs, but the drugs aren't all that different from the drugs we've had for decades. We have a somewhat better understanding of diagnosis, but they're still based on phenomenology and, and descriptive aspects that are important, of course, how people feel but doesn't really get at the mechanisms driving the disease in any way different from decades ago. And and unfortunately, that means that therapeutics aren't more effective. Um, And everything still in the clinic remains uh, trial and error. So even though we have a dozen or more antidepressants, choosing between them is is a trial and error process. And the worst kind of trial and error, because you don't know for weeks whether the choice you made is the right one. And And as a psychiatrist, I can tell you that's frustrating. And certainly for patients, that's incredibly frustrating. Why does this remain an area largely defined by trial and error with regards to matching patients to the most appropriate and effective therapies? Does it reflect some gap in understanding of the biology of these conditions? So my view is that the gap that people think exists is actually smaller than it, than we perceive it to be when you start digging into the opportunities at hand for for actually uh, shrinking it. So, so let me explain a little bit of the the context here and, and take almost an anthropology of science and medicine perspective. When we started decades ago in what we would call modern psychiatry or mar- modern psychopharmacology, we didn't even have a, a sort of firm understanding of diagnoses in the first place. So. Back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, there was everybody had their own definition of disease. There was really no consensus. And so when that consensus came in, 
the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or DSM as it's called, that's standardized diagnoses, but they were all describing the phenomenology. And they were unfortunately done by committee and less by science. And over time, that approach gets reified. Also, unfortunately, in some sense, perhaps fortunately in others, drugs started to come forward and especially SSRIs came forward and more modern so-called second generation antipsychotics, which are all drugs that were easier to take, had fewer side effects and actually more prescribable by non-psychiatrists. And so the people providing the psychiatric care didn't really push into the mechanisms and psychiatry meanwhile reified um, the diagnoses as they have been and FDA supports that reification because it just drives these new, uh, you know, me too type approvals. And, uh, and pharma, despite the opportunity, never really collected data at the kind of scale, biological data, the kind of scale that would be necessary for bending the curve. And that's all fine and well if you keep having drugs that while trial and error and having a small effect size are successful, the problem really happens when you run into a wall that the next set of drugs you create are not successful. And that's what happened in the early 2000s. And then pharma left and really nobody then has really uh, picked up the, the mantle for years because in a sense, the academics are left holding the bag with studies that are too small, methods that are not necessarily meant to translate to uh, the clinic and widespread um, you day-to-day know, -day use. So there's this unfortunate mix of the evolution of science and the anthropology of, of science and medicine here and just how people and organizations think. But the science underneath has been evolving and I think that's the opportunity we're at today to actually take advantage of a lot of insights that have come uh, to pass that now just need to be put into practice. There's also been what I'd call a stunning lack of innovation with regards to newly approved therapies for psychiatric disorders. In, in the past 20 years, only one drug with a novel mechanism of action won approval for major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or addiction. Why do you think that is? I think it's it's the same issue that, that I mentioned, it becomes kind of circular that if you don't understand the disorders, particularly, we don't have a, a marker to differentiate who will respond to a drug versus not, or who has a particular cause of a disorder or, or sort of a, a correlate even of a, of a subgroup within a disorder. And we keep reifying the same phenomenological disorders. It becomes really hard to find things that work at that what we call all comer level, where you just take a really broad clinical group and give them the same drug. Think of this actually from the cancer analogy. If we took that all comer perspective, just everybody with a lung cancer, everybody with whatever uh, tumor, and don't pay any attention to the biology of that tumor, all of the drugs that we're looking at now would not have worked. In fact, Keytruda is perhaps the best example of this, which was about to be shelved until they realized the marker that exists for it. And, and that's where we are in psychiatry is it becomes this, this sort of negative feedback loop that we don't have any innovation because we don't have a way to partition people. We thought we don't have a way to partition people. We use arguments like the brain is too complex and therefore we have to understand the brain from the bottom up. That's the brain initiative that NIH has been promoting 
um, before we can make any progress. I just don't think that that's actually true. I think we've put more hurdles in front of ourselves uh, than we actually need to at the moment. You're developing therapies for major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. How well addressed are these conditions by existing therapies and what's the opportunity you see? Yeah, so, so that's, it's a fascinating question. You can ask it in a couple different ways. And in, in, in all ways, I think the opportunity is massive. So with depression, you can say, wow, there's a lot of antidepressants out there. But just as you said, there's really been very little mechanistic, uh, you know, diversity in terms of the antidepressants, leaving a huge amount of people completely unresponsive to everything we have now. We call that treatment-resistant depression, but a lot of people in between who are poorly responsive to what we have. So there's a huge need in depression. Depression is incredible, incredibly prevalent disorder um, worldwide. PTSD is in a different camp where um, there's been almost no studies of psychopharmacology and PTSD when you look at that relative to depression. The prevalence is about half of that of depression, so it's really common disorder. There's only two approved medications. Those are both SSRIs that were essentially life cycle extensions from depression products. Uh, so we, re we actually really don't have effective treatments except for psychotherapy for some people in PTSD. So there it's not only trial and error, it's trial and error between medications that are not approved and mostly not even studied well in the disorder. And, and so those are just wide open areas. But then when you look outside of that, there are areas like addiction where we have absolutely nothing outside of essentially uh, minimal tools with a um, little bit in, in alcohol and a little bit in opiates, um, in, in psychosis, in schizophrenia and related conditions. The same tools, the same antipsychotics have been there forever. We have nothing new in decades. Autism, we have nothing. Um, so in any area of psychiatry, I think that there's opportunity, even when there seem like a lot of drugs available, um, like antidepressants. But then the picture is even broader when you include certain areas of neurology, like non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's cognition and, and depression co-occur there. And, and those patients, that, that picture looks a lot like a psychiatric disorder in terms of abnormalities and in brain circuits that you can attack in, in, in sort of similar ways as you could in psychiatry. So, so the landscape is, is massive. I see this really as the frontier, both in medicine and science, in terms of just the need being huge, but the opportunity being actually close at hand. Alto has developed a biomarker platform to identify responsive patients and drive drug development. How does the platform work? What are the inputs and what are the outputs? What accounts for patient variation in these conditions? Yeah, so so let's take it from first principles and, and work back and you see how that plays out. So first principle number one is there can be no drug without a companion diagnostic, without a biomarker to identify responders. So everything we develop has to be in the context of understanding biology. And the way we then go about understanding biology is the second principle, which is these are brain circuit disorders, abnormalities in different functions like cognitive functions, emotional functions, sleep and activity patterns. And we can quantify those things. We can use tools 
like electroencephalography or EEG, which is a way to measure brain activity and brain connectivity. We're even doing that in people's homes. Um, and that tells us about brain function in different ways. We have behavioral tests of cognitive and emotional functions. Think of things like attention, decision-making, learning and memory, response to reward, uh, emotional biases, wearables to look at sleep and activity patterns. How, what is your sleep structured like? You know, how much do you sleep? When do you sleep? What's your activity pattern throughout the day? All of these things assess these brain circuits whose dysfunction underlies these disorders and which are targeted, therefore, by the drugs that we have out there now and the drugs that we're developing. And that's that common then uh, language that all of the patient populations can speak biologically and in the common language that the drugs can speak biologically. And that becomes a platform. So, so we see then essentially what Alto is doing is two different interlocked elements that have been co-evolved. The drug side, we have 11 clinical stage assets that are all aimed to be first in class or best in class. And this pipe, this, this platform, this biomarker platform that tells us who responds and why to any given treatment. And then you can compare across treatments, across disorders, and then how those same measures change over time. And as you think of this from a, not biotech, but tech perspective of a common source of data where we fit machine learning based models, we continually get better at understanding our populations and the biology in those populations with these, these interventions as essentially probes of uh, biology and of different clinical populations. You can see how this starts to create a positive feedback loop or a textile flywheel where the more data that we collect, either in our drug studies or on observational, uh, in observational studies of large samples, the better we understand these populations, the better we're able to partition them. And we have a lot of evidence, some of which we've already published on those partitions, and the better we're able to fit the right drug for those people. And, and that is the kind of cycle as it keeps running will create greater specificity higher magnitude effects of the drugs in the populations and more prospective design of new drugs based on understanding these populations. And, and what's been done to validate the platform? So we've published a number of papers. This is in my lab at Stanford where uh, I spent a decade as a, as a professor. That's really the motivation that led to Alto is, is growing that work academically and seeing that the next step was was really scaling it as a company. We've published a number of high-impact papers. Uh, we've done a lot of replication within those papers, so a big part of machine learning um, and kind of proper machine learning etiquette is uh, making sure you, you know where you're training your data and how you're validating the data on separate data sets, so replicating our ability to partition people with tools uh, like EEG and behavior. Uh, replicating the ability of that partitioning to predict treatment outcome with standard of care treatments like medication or psychotherapy, brain stimulation. Um, and, and that's really proved out um, the method in terms of a public-facing validation. And then we've done a lot internally. Um, in fact, to kind of give you one perspective on the shift from academia to industry, I think academics and myself included when that was was sort of my focus are almost surprised when they see replication because there's so much non-replication. At Alto, that is what we demand at the very first 
step. So we don't get excited about a signal unless we see it replicate. It's a very different mindset. And so we do a huge amount of validation on our signals internally. We do a lot of work on issues like uh, test retest reliability of these signals. So if we're going to predict your outcome with a drug, uh, that biological marker has to essentially be valid in that prediction and stable for weeks or months so that it could be used clinically. Nothing enters our system until we've really sussed uh, sussed out the, the reliability of these measures. So there's a lot of, of just data science work to condition our data to know what it is that we're working with because you could quantify any number of things on these data streams, but you just really need to know that those are the right uh, uh, ways to quantify. And, and that's the, that's sort of the hard work. That's the, the secret sauce that um, experience, and we've been doing this for a decade, you know, experience really brings, uh, brings us the, the capability to make sense of these data. You've called your pipeline the largest clinical stage precision psychiatry pipeline. You're pursuing major depressive disorder and PTSD, but you break your pipeline into three categories, cognition targeting, emotion targeting, and sleep targeting. This is a bit different from the traditional way of presenting a pipeline with specific indications. Why is that? Yeah, so that's a really good point and was very deliberate, as, as you're suggesting. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is that the way we think about our biomarkers in defining brain functions that we're targeting, that we're looking for people who have abnormalities in those functions, um, better aligns with a functional framing than a molecular framing. Cognition, for example, is a number of different things. And there are many different ways to improve cognition, to improve mood by improving cognition. And you could have different targets from a molecular perspective, but the bottom line is we're assessing those functions from a phenotypic or functional perspective, looking at behavior, looking at EEG and so forth. But the second perspective is that diagnoses are in a way orthogonal to the biology that matters. For example, we find the same biomarkers that separate patients into, if you will, biotypes in depression and in PTSD. So it doesn't really matter whether you have depression or PTSD, the same biology applies and it's gonna apply across disorders. And so by anchoring on that functional unit, it should actually make it easier for us to translate insights in one area to an entirely different area, to go from depression to schizophrenia or, or you know Parkinson's or whatnot, where the same circuit perspective applies. And in that sense, it's extraordinarily deliberate because we want to be anchored by biology rather than being uh, limited in terms of our field of view by traditional diagnoses. That said, we understand that FDA um, and to some degree, the clinical world still thinks of things in diagnoses. So from that perspective, what this would be called would be multi-diagnosis or, or multi-indication development. So it'll be an approval in depression, an approval in PTSD, an approval in schizophrenia as uh, would be fit for any one drug, but still it's that same biology that's, that's guiding them. You have two clinical programs in development. I, I wanted to, to go through each of those. Let's start with Alto 100, which is being developed for major depressive disorder and PTSD. What is Alto 100 and how does it work? 
Yeah, so some of the details um, we can't unfortunately share at the moment just due to the way the the licensing agreements and so forth cover the confidentiality of the, the molecule. But to say what, what I certainly um, can share about that, uh, that molecule, it's a novel mechanism of action drug, the pro-cognitive, pro-plasticity antidepressant that works on the kind of molecular pathways that we've now learned are really important for uh, both driving cognition changes and driving mood changes. And, and those two being really interlinked. So, so the way to think from our perspective about a number of disorders, starting with depression and PTSD, but it really is much broader than that, is that there are often interlaced features when you're talking about mood, some people have sleep problems, some people have cognitive problems, and so on and so forth. And, and some people have you know, anxiety or different features. And, and that starts to clinically define patients. But you can, of course, ground those clinical features in biomarkers that measure those processes more directly and in a more, um, in a more objective sense. And so what this drug does is it works on uh, plasticity and plasticity increasingly that that is the ability of the brain to adapt to stimuli around it is thought to, to be a central process that's important for cognition and important for mood and and hence we're really targeting both at the same time we know in areas uh, like uh, research on SSRIs in animals that plasticity is an important target but takes weeks to unfold um, and, and of course, we're looking for something that is a more that more directly targets plasticity. We know in areas like um, ketamine uh, as an antidepressant, and then potentially in psychedelics, that the changes in plasticity are much more immediate. And that's the case with this drug. So this drug enhances plasticity within minutes of exposure to neurons, but doesn't have that same psychedelic. Um, effect that you see in, in ketamine or, or in other psychedelics, the same sort of psychotropic mind-altering effect. Uh, and so we think of it as a much more direct manipulation of plasticity that then will have the flow-on effects to improve mood and cognition, and, and arguably improving mood in part through improving uh, cognition. But as a drug, it's a completely unique mechanism of action relative to everything else that's out there. Are you using biomarkers to screen potential participants in the clinical trials to determine who might be a likely responder? We've already identified a candidate biomarker for that drug. We're looking to validate that, and we're looking to optimize uh, on that. And so the way we've built our clinical trials, and this is true of, of every one of our clinical trials, is we um, are very uh, kind of careful in our separation of different parts of the data. So we have a training data set and a separate holdout test set. And so we already have, uh, as I mentioned, a biomarker that we're looking to test there. We'll be testing that in the training data set, further optimizing using our entire pipeline, our ability to partition patients and, and using AI to really tune that biomarker and then validate that again on a separate holdout test set. Each of these, is, each of these uh, studies is, is very large, hundreds of patients. Um, and so that, by the end of it, will give us a pretty firm understanding of how to find those patients who will respond to this drug. The next step to which then is a registration-supportive phase 2B study, which we think will come uh, around mid to late next year. 
And that will use the biomarker then to select patients explicitly uh, for inclusion or exclusion based on that information. Right now, we're looking to optimize that biomarker first before we select with it. Where are you in development and what's the clinical path forward? So the study is ongoing, launched um, uh, late last year, and it's progressing along nicely. We're expecting to have that study read out by the end of this year. And then next step is, uh, assuming the data are supportive, is, is one or more uh, registration supportive phase 2Bs. We need to get FDA feedback, of course, on the structure of that study. But that puts us in, let's say, mid-2023 at the point at which we're already in the shoot in terms of um, pivotal trials on that drug in potentially multiple populations, right, in depression and in PTSD. And, and that, to me, is just the most exciting aspect of this whole process, which is because we are harnessing drugs that have already to some degree had clinical developments, we know their safety. And in the case of this drug, we know uh, some of its efficacy and some of its biology that by virtue of our scalable and in-home remote accessible biomarker platform, this pushes our, our progress through to uh, pivotal trials much, much faster. So we could get the drugs out there um, more readily. You know, we're thinking of uh, filing for approval if all goes well around 2025 or 2026, but also even more importantly, that we can test our theories, test our uh, platform, test our approach in clinical populations right away. And, and that provides the information on how to do it better and better for every subsequent drug and subsequent indication. How about Alto 300? What is it and, and how does that work? Yeah, so, so again, similar concept here, except rather than cognition, looking at sleep and circadian rhythms. So sleep is actually one of those things that actually responds most poorly uh, or, or quite poorly rather to existing treatments. It's often one of the uh, symptoms that in depression, when you treat uh, patients and they go into clinical remission, they may still have sleep problems and, and often determines a lot of uh, the risk for relapse. And, and yet sleep is one of those facets. And, and by sleep, I mean, not just as a hypnotic getting you to sleep, but sleep and activity patterns that you can actually directly measure using the kind of thing that, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people have on their wrist every day, which is some sort of a smartwatch or activity tracker. So it's eminently quantifiable. And the and this drug essentially works on both uh, resetting circadian rhythms and through that uh, and through some of its other pharmacology having effects on mood. And so one would, I think, certainly reason that if you can measure this capacity of sleep and activity patterns, and the drug has a pretty uh, direct mechanistic tie to this, then that could actually be a perfect setup for finding a biomarker uh, of treatment response. I should also take this opportunity to mention that there are functions that we have not included in our platform because they can't really be measured as well as sleep, for example, can or cognition can. For example, appetite is much harder to measure. Social interactions are harder to measure. Um, and so those are things we have not explored as yet. We hope to in the future. But sleep is really sleep and activity patterns, circadian rhythms. You know, we have 
we have millions of these data sets being generated every day in the U.S. alone through devices uh, being worn, you know, Apple watches and Fitbits and, and the like. And this is really aimed to take advantage of that information. Where are you in development with Alta 300 and what's the development path forward for that? So that one is the same uh, as for Alta 100. The study has started and well underway. We expect that to read out by the end of this year, uh, both finding and, and validating uh, stratification biomarkers, and then going to uh, phase 2B registration supportive work in the back half of 2023. If you're successful, do you expect to win approval for your therapies with a paired diagnostic? Absolutely. So I think that that has to be critical, uh, that expectation that there is no drug without a diagnostic. There's always this attempt that pharma has made in CNS of kind of dancing with biomarkers a little bit, but then when it comes, you know, uh, time to actually go for approval, they try to go for a broad population without a biomarker. And, and that's the root of the problem. So we view that, yep, absolutely, we need to have a companion diagnostic with every drug, and it's got to be explicit throughout all stages of development. And because of that, we also need to make sure that our diagnostics are, are diagnostics that are scalable, that are able to be done in people's homes, certainly with a view now that the pandemic has brought us. But I think just from a practical perspective, we can't expect um, psychiatrists and, and non-psychiatric clinicians who are prescribing these drugs to be completely retrained in how to capture biological data. We've got to create a parallel uh, data stream, parallel universe, where patients can just go on a website, sign up for a test that's done in their home and get information that then the prescriber handles in the way they would when they make any prescribing choice. And, uh, and for that reason, we put a lot of effort into decentralized clinical trials, that is clinical trials that don't use standard brick and mortar sites and are done in patients' homes, including completely uh, by remote, and made sure that our, um, uh, that our tools, that our uh, uh, biomarkers and, and analytic methods are able to scale in that way into the home and therefore from a clinical and commercial perspective, are unlimited in their scaling capacity to really meet patients where they're at. And how is the company funded to date and how far will existing funding take you? Yeah, so the, the company to date has raised $40 million and uh, that and ongoing fundraising will uh, take us well through um, the readouts, the phase two B, the phase two A uh, readouts. We're doing a lot of phase one activities um, as well. Uh, in terms of bringing up the other, we talked about two drugs. The other nine drugs in our um, all clinical stage pipelines is all human data that will be generated in the next uh, twelve to eighteen months. Uh, our lead investor um, from the Series A was a Payron. Uh, which is Christian Ungermeyer's firm, which uh, some folks may know uh, from his uh, heavy funding of psychedelic companies like Atai and Compass. Uh, but what's really been wonderful about them as a funder is they have identified mental health as the key opportunity and really put their money where their mouth is, um, not just with us, but with a number of other companies and created an ecosystem for innovation in biotech and mental health. And, and that kind of, of sort of vision 
support has been invaluable uh, and they've been a wonderful partner. And to that regard, is there interaction between the various portfolio companies to help each other? To some degree, but each company, I think, uh, proceeds down different paths. I think there's a, a period where we all need to kind of mature our, our methods a bit before we're able to interact more fruitfully. But we're certainly, um, you know, friends. We are, you know, colleagues interact in different places. Uh, don't yet have any formal collaborations with, with the other portfolio companies. Amit Etkin, founder and CEO of Alto Neuroscience. Amit, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.